Would you agree that one of the issues facing the church today is a misunderstanding of prayer? Or could, could even a prayerlessness be an issue facing the church today? I, I certainly think that's, that's part of it. I certainly think it's, even a, it's an issue in my own life. I'm not, I'm not preaching on prayer because I feel like this is one of my strengths. <laughs> I'm doing it because I know it's one of my weaknesses. It's, it's something that I need help with. And I, and I want to encourage us today. I don't want to beat you down, by the way, because I know we'd probably all say none of us have arrived in this area. So may, be, may you be edified. May you be encouraged and exhorted as you talk with God. Because that's what prayer is, is about, isn't it? Talking with God. May you want to do this. May you desire to do this. May it be a passion. It's something that we do on a constant basis. Part of the problem, I, I think, though, is we don't really understand, maybe perhaps, or some of us may not understand, what are the elements of prayer. Probably a lot of people think when they think of prayer, they think of, well, I'm, I'm bringing my requests before God or my petitions or supplications, whatever you want to call them. And, and a lot of time it's maybe for some, some Christians it's only praying you know, before you eat. I'm going to give grace, whatever that you know, people mean by that when they say that. So we need to look at the scriptures to find out that prayer includes more than just requests or our supplications or our petitions. So let's look at the various elements of prayer. And the first one is confession. First element of prayer is confession. So let's define what this is. What do we mean by confession? Well, the Greek word for confession just simply means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. In other words, it's agreeing with God that we are helplessly guilty. Therefore, you could say to confess our sins is to say the same thing as God says about our sins. And that means that we're in agreement with God's perspective in regards to our sins. There's some helpful models in the scripture on confession. One of my favorites would be the prophet Daniel. Of course, you know Daniel is in the Old Testament. And that Old Testament prophet Daniel, God has described him as a righteous man who lived a pure life despite the fact that he was living in the midst of a pagan society. You know that he had been taken to Babylon, and then eventually Babylon was conquered by the Persians and the Medes. But despite all of that, despite the fact that he was living in this pagan society, Daniel always prayed. In fact, you you probably know the story. When Daniel was thrown into lion's den, by going against the king's order, the king's command, so prayer got him in big trouble. His, his worship of God got him in big trouble. But Daniel always dealt with sin whenever he prayed. And we see Daniel praying a lot. He was a man of prayer. And, and when he wasn't confessing his own sin, he was confessing the sin of those around him. Before he began to pray, the Bible says, Daniel chapter 9, that Daniel set his face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications 
with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that you go and imitate that particular model. <laughs> okay, you don't need, don't, don't, don't go and rip your clothes off and wear some, some really rough uh, bag and throw some ashes on your head. But when we enter into God's presence, we, we must come acknowledging, at least acknowledging who we are in God's sight. That we're, yes, we're saints if we're Christians, but we are sinning saints who deserve judgment. I want you to see how Daniel begins his confession here in chapter 9, verse 4. He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. Remember, this prayer is coming from a righteous man. Was he perfect? No, of course not. But uh, we, we constantly see Daniel as a man of God, praying, confessing, if not his own sin, certainly the sins of others. So what's the purpose of confession? Why would God want us to do this? Well, there might be many reasons. It's, it's, a, it's a hard one sometimes to understand God's mind, but certainly confession's a healthy beginning for prayer. It's providing a reminder that we don't deserve anything that God gives us. His, his grace to us is unmerited. And so when we're affirming with God that we deserve nothing, that helps us to have the right perspective. We're, we're coming humbly. It's going to end the self-centeredness. Well, hopefully it will end the self-centeredness that usually, often at least, is in my prayers. Let's think about some of the elements of confession that we see in the Bible. Here In Psalm 51, we have a great confession of sin. You probably noticed the title, which are not inspired but helpful, Psalm 51, that it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David confesses his sin. David is a believer, by the way. So this is, this is the prayer of a Christian before God. What is he doing? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this. But this particular psalm is, is showing at least three elements of true confession. We're going to see a right view of sin, of God as well as self. So let's look at the first one there. The first element of confession is a right view of sin. So we see in Psalm 51, verse 1, we, we see here, what, what does sin actually deserve? Well, sin deserves judgment, because you know the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. But look what David prays in the very first verse. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So in true confession, we must recognize that we do not deserve to be forgiven. David recognized that. And so the only recourse then, when, when you recognize that, the only recourse is that we have to appeal to God's mercy. So a right view of sin is important. And so this, this right view of sin is also recognizing then an urgent need for cleansing, and that's why he's, he's praying, Oh God, would you please blot out my transgressions? He, he can't do that. 
David couldn't do that, but of course God could. And then notice what it says in verse 2, because he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's recognizing this this urgent need for cleansing. A right view of sin, by the way, also accepts full responsibility for the sin, because look what he says in verse 3. Because he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. That's the right thing to do. To, to accept responsibility for your sin. You certainly don't do what I used to do as a teenager, and a lot of people do. They blame shift, right? We love blame shifting. We get it from our mother and father, Adam and Eve. right? It's, it's something else made me do it. Or For me, it was like, well, Satan made me do that. No, Satan can't make you do anything. Take responsibility for your sin, full responsibility for it, as David does here where he says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. But a right view of sin is also recognizing that we sin because it's in our very nature to do so. You inherited that nature from your father, Adam. And so look what it, what it says here in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not a beautiful picture, is it? But that's where confession needs to start. You need this right view of your sin. But this confession moves on to a right view of God. And that's the second element of confession. It's a right view of God. And David recognized God's holiness. See, you're never going to get a right view of your sin until you recognize who God is. And so look what David says in verse 6. He says, Behold... You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then David also referred to God's authority over sin in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then David moves on to recognize God's compassion. Well, praise God, not only is God Holy, he's also a compassionate God, because look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So David's recognizing God has chastised him. He's disciplining him as one of his beloved children. But God isn't just a tyrant. He's not just doing this because he's some mean God. He's bringing David back into fellowship with him. And so look what, look what it says here. So he, he's saying, make me hear joy and gladness. I, I want to, re- to return back into fellowship with you because you're the one who has broken my bones, so to speak. And then David understands God's mercy in verse 9 when he says, hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. So it starts with a right view of our sin. The second element of confession is a right view of God. And then third is a right view of self. You'll never get to the right view of yourself, by the way, until you understand who God is and how he views our sin. 
But David knew he had to live a holy life. Look what he says in verse 13. Verse 13. Then, after all these other 12 verses, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. In verse 17, we we see David knew he had to live a holy life, not just for others' sake, but he needed to live a holy life for God's sake. Verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knew he needed to have this holy life for sinner's sake, for God's sake, and for saints' sake. Look what he says in verse 18. Verse 18, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me just kind of summarize this so we're all together. What we've seen is that only when we're in this right relationship with God can then we intercede for others. God's not going to listen to your prayers. Your prayers will be hindered, if you will, when you're not in a right relationship and fellowship with God. So true confession can occur only when we see God for who He is. And when we see sin for what it is. And then when we see ourselves for what we really are. And that's what we see going on in this particular psalm of confession. So the first element of prayer is confession. The second element of prayer is praise. Praise. So my friends, if you want to glorify God, then we need to praise Him. This is what God wants us to do. In fact, the the Bible even says that the lips of our praise are, are worship before Him. Let me give you an example, just one example of this. Look at Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 23. Psalm 50, verse 23, it says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Notice that first part. How can you glorify God? You can do that by offering praise. Offering praise. What does it mean to praise God, though? What what does that mean? Well, we need to understand that God is not so much concerned about the manner of our praise. Some people really get caught up in that. You know, do I raise one arm or both arms? Or do do I have to get on my knees? Or do I have to go in a closet? Or, you know, do do I go out in the bush? You know, people get really hung up on the, the mannerisms of of praying let me encourage you don't get caught up on too much on that because you can you can worship god almost anywhere you know you can worship god with your arms raised arms down by your side you know on your knees whatever okay but think more about the content (laughs) according to the bible praise involves at least three elements this is all part of the content okay how can you praise god number one Here's the first element of praise. Name God's attributes. 
Name his attributes. You read the prayers of the Bible. You see the people in the Bible constantly naming God's attributes as a way of praising him. I'll give you one example. The Psalms are just loaded with this, but here's one example on the screen here for you. Coming from Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2, it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Well, there's just two of God's attributes mentioned in those two verses. We see His loving kindness and His faithfulness mentioned. And of course, God has way more than that. Let me encourage you to know who God is so that you can then praise Him, naming His attributes. And so when you praise the Lord, as you wake up, you know what you're doing? Because that talks about declaring your loving kindness in the morning. And if you don't do that on a regular basis, let me encourage you, make, make the first thing you do as you wake up be praising God, at least acknowledging God, talking to God in some way, some form, okay? As you get up in the morning, somehow talk to God, okay? Let me encourage you to praise Him in some way. It sets the tone for the day when you do that. And then as you do, as the psalmist does here in verse 2, when you're praising God at nighttime, think about Him as you're falling asleep at nighttime. Talk to Him. It's a great way to just kind of end the day. And you're establishing this pattern of praise in all of your life. And by the way, don't forget about him in, throughout the day too, but, but certainly remember him when you, you get up in the morning as you go to sleep at night. So you can praise God just by naming his attributes, but a, a second element of praise is you can name God's works. Again, the, the Psalms are loaded with God's works. The the psalmist is continually praising God for his various works. Oh, boy. I mean, just some of the ones that I've noticed over the years. The the psalms are loaded with God's works, particularly in in regard to the nation of Israel. The, The psalmists are praising God for things like when God parted the Red Sea for Israel and and brought them across on the dry dry ground and then and then God destroying the armies of Egypt and God bringing Israel out of Egypt and then opening the Jordan River so that they could go into the promised land. The, the Psalms mention God feeding the children of Israel by, by dropping manna down from heaven, whatever that was. Uh, bringing water out of a rock in the wilderness <laughs> to feed all these millions of people or to, to, to give them water. Those are just some of the things that the psalmist is displaying of God's works. Here's one I like, Psalm 105. Look at this. Psalm 105, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. So that last verse mentions just a few of God's works in general that we need to praise Him for. Notice it talks about His wondrous works that He has done. 
These are obviously past events. Remember God's miracles in your life and others' lives. The ones you see in the Bible. His judgments are also worthy of praise. So those are some ways you can praise God. But there's a third element of praise that we see in the Bible, and that is offering thanks, our thanksgiving. So naming the attributes and the the works of God will then hopefully lead us, lead to to thinking about these, these things, which will then help us to give thanksgiving to God for what he's done, for what he's doing. And and by the way, don't forget what God will do. He's going to do these things because he has promised to do them. And the Apostle Paul emphasized the need for gratitude when he wrote Philippians 4, 6. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Notice that little phrase. As you pray, as you're giving your petitions, your supplications to God, don't forget, do it with thanksgiving. So what's the medicine for worry? Because it talks about don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. So what is the medicine that God wants us to take for worry? The answer, according to that, is thanksgiving. Because what's the problem with a worrier? If you're a worrier, your problem is you're meditating on the wrong content. That's the problem. It's unbelief. And so what you have to do is you have to then switch it, and you have to meditate on the right content. See, worriers are great meditators. They're really good at it. The problem is it's the wrong content. They're thinking about things that aren't true, things that might come to pass. God doesn't want us to do that, because he says, be anxious for nothing. But then he wants us to pray about it. Bring these these concerns that you have before him, but do it with thanksgiving. Meditate on the right content. So be filled with praise to God, and you know what's going to happen when you do that? You will stop worrying. You will stop being anxious. Your noisy soul will go away. It's the way God designed it. So after you've confessed your sin, praised and thanked God for who He is and what He's done and He's going to do, guess what? Then, then you're ready to bring your petitions before Him. And that's the third element of prayer. The third element of prayer is petition, or some of your Bibles might use the word supplication. So God wants to hear what your burdens are. Now, some people think, God's busy. You know, it's, it's like he's some noisy switchboard up in heaven. Like, you might picture, uh, you know, somebody, the old way of doing phones, right? No, God is, God is not too busy. He, he's not bothered by you talking to him. In fact, he wants you to bring your burdens before him. And we don't need to be afraid to take those burdens to him. Why? Well, 1 Peter 5, 7 reminds us to cast our care upon God because He cares for us. He wants to hear from you. Let's be clear. 
what is the object of our petitions? What is the object of our, of our prayer request? Well, you often think of your desires, I'm sure, and, and that's legitimate. Your own desires are legitimate prayer requests. As we just read in Philippians 4, 6, it, where, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do it. He cares for you. So, bring your desires before God. But the Bible also talks about the, the right object of our petitions is also others. We need to be concerned about others. There's places in the Bible that talk about this. For example, Ephesians 6, 18 says that we're to be praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. All the saints. So let me ask you this. What do you think is more important? What do you think is more important? Physical or spiritual? Well... Let me ask you this, for what do Christians pray the most? <laughs> I might tell you what, what we often think is the most important. I, I hope you would agree that physical needs are important, but what, what is the most important? Well, usually people uh, often think uh, of physical needs. Often people pray for physical needs. And by the way, that's not a sin to pray for the physical needs you and others have. But we need to be concerned about others' spiritual needs, even more so than their physical needs. I want you to see some biblical prayers on this. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and we have several prayers from the Apostle Paul here that will help guide us in our own prayer life. I want you to notice as Paul is praying, and he's he's written these down in Holy Scripture for us, that these prayers are not so much about physical needs, they're more concerned about spiritual needs. So let's take note of how the Holy Spirit has inspired this here for us. Look how the Apostle Paul prayed for believers here in the book of Ephesians. First of all, first of all, I want you to notice that Paul prayed for an understanding of spiritual resources. And here's the point, my friends. We, as we pray for others, this, this is something that one of the things that should dominate our prayers for others. That other Christians would understand their spiritual resources. So look at this first prayer in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That text is all about spiritual resources. And Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus would understand their spiritual resources. <laughs> he spends a couple chapters writing about that. And then, and then the end of the book is showing you how to apply that. So Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and by the way, for all believers, is that they would both know the deep truths of salvation and that they would appreciate and then apply those truths and, and continue to grow more and more in this way. And so to assure that will happen, he wants everyone to know three things. And so what is he doing here? Well, Paul shows the greatness of God's plan, the greatness of God's power, and the greatness of God's Son. Let me just highlight a few things. We don't have time to do a whole exposition of this passage, but notice in verse 18, verse 18, we see the greatness of God's plan. Because it talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul wanted them to understand. He wanted them to, he used the word know here, but he wants them to understand two specific aspects of God's plan. Number one, he wants them to understand their calling. And by the way, the calling there is referring to their election, which he's just written about in the previous verses, previous 14 verses there. talks a lot about election. And so he, he's, he's reminding them of that truth that God elected them before the foundation of the world. He chose them in Christ. It's a glorious truth. It's part of God's plan, and he's reminding them of that. But he also reminds them and points to this hope. What is this hope there in verse 18? It's our eternal glory with Christ. Why do we have an eternal glory with Christ? It's because God chose us. He's the one who saved us. That's God's plan. But Paul moves on to verses 19 and 20 and says, uh, hey, <laughs> this is about God's power. God's power is just seen mightily in these verses. It, it's an immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Wow. Well, we could talk a long time about that. And he goes on to verse 20, talking about how He worked in Christ, Christ's power was so great that he even raised him from the dead, conquering death and Satan and sin. But we also see the greatness of Jesus Christ there in verse 21, that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Oh, if we would only understand our spiritual resources, how 
much would that help us in this life? Wow. As I grow more and more in this area, it it is so helpful. And I would encourage you to study this and then pray for others in this way for them to understand their spiritual resources in Christ Jesus. But Paul moves on to another prayer in chapter 3, and he prays for the release of God's power, not only for them to understand God's power as we saw as part of these spiritual resources, but then for God's power to be released and lived out in their life and in the church. So let's, let's read this passage here, Ephesians 3, verse 14. Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This prayer is all about the release of God's power. And this prayer outlines five aspects of God's power that are available to all believers. Let me just highlight these for you. They're all starting with the letter I. It might help you remember, I hope. In verse 16, Paul talks about this inner strength. He wants, this, he wants them to understand, to know the inner strength that God has given to believers. After all, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And so in verse 16, he talks about this power from the Holy Spirit when he's, he says that you may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Wow, we need to understand that more, don't we? We need to live in the light of this glorious truth that the third member of the Trinity of the Godhead resides within us and empowers us. We have power from the Holy Spirit. That's the first of these five aspects here of God's power. But number two, Paul talks about the indwelling Christ. Verse 17. Again, look at verse 17 because he says, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3, 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And by the way, the, the word dwell there, the idea of Christ settling down. May Christ be, in other words, comfortable because you can't really settle down unless you're comfortable you ever gone to someone's house and they say make yourself comfortable make yourself at home you ever had someone tell you that make yourself at home put your feet up go get a glass of milk help yourself you know make yourself a cup of tea get something out of the refrigerator right that that's that's nice because then you can when they tell you that, you know it's not really your home. But 
uh, you, you get the point, right? You, you get to relax a little bit, feel comfortable, settle down. And that's the idea here. We, we want Christ to dwell on us in this way where, where he is settled down. He is comfortable in this relationship and fellowship with us. That's what we should desire. But number three, a third aspect of God's power is this incomprehensible love. It's just incomprehensible. There's no way we could fully understand this. If you look at the end of verse 17 there, it talks about that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What, what is this? It's just... It's, it's so vast, it's wider, deeper, higher, longer. Everything is bigger and better about this love than we could possibly understand. Well, let me ask you this. Are you radiating Christ's love? Do you understand Christ's love? And are you radiating, radiating that love to people around you? We should be. If, if we have this love and understand it, it should just be radiating from us. Hopefully it is. But number four, a fourth aspect of God's power here is this infinite fullness in verse 19. There, there's a fullness that we just cannot fully comprehend in verse 19. Because he talks about, you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, we have so much power, it's just infinite here. The idea is, may we experience total spiritual richness. We, we so often live like we, we, like we don't have God's power. We do. It, it's, it's available, but Paul is praying for this particular church and us as, as a body of believers that we would understand God's power and it would be released, that we'd experience this total spiritual richness, richness in our lives. And then the fifth point is this immeasurable power. In verse 20, it would be more abundantly than all we ask or think. <laughs> this power is at work within us. God wants us to, to unleash His power in us. Too often we squelch Him. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's there, but we're not, we don't live like He is there. We're not using that power that's been available to us like we should. Well, some people might ask as they think about this, well, hey, why should I bother with all of this amazing stuff, I mean, after all, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm on my way to heaven, and like you said, I got the Holy Spirit, and I got my fire insurance from hell, and you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be made like Jesus Christ when I see him. So, uh, really, why, why bother now? Well, the answer is found in verse 21, <laughs> which says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. So why bother? We bother because God wants to be glorified in His church right now. 
right now. Don't just think of something in the future, but right now. So my encouragement and exhortation is that that each of us would pray for God to be honored in our own lives. Pray that God would be honored and glorified in other people's lives, in our church, and in other churches. Not just in New Zealand, but around the world. Why? So that people would know God, and they would worship God in spirit and in truth. They would know who He is, so that God would get the honor and glory that He deserves. Do you care about that? That's why you should bother. Okay? That's why you should bother now. That's what he's talking about. So may we be concerned about that as Paul is. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Thank you for these biblical prayers that we see here in the scriptures. Thank you for the ability you've given to us to talk to you. The heavens are not silent. The, the, there's no ceiling, so to speak, in this fellowship that we can have with you. Thank you for caring that we can bring our burdens before you. We know you care, but may we live like you care. So, Father, would we be a people who are ceaselessly praying to you? May our relationship be so precious to us. May it be our greatest treasure that we have that, that we just kind of, it just, it's just a natural thing like breathing. Cause us to do this. We pray. If not, well, convict us. Show us our sin. Show us what is hindering our prayer. May we confess that sin. May we think of you as a, a loving Father who's longing and waiting for a backslidden, long-word son to return. May we have the right view of you and of our sin and of ourselves. And show us who you are so that we would then want to talk to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.